Bibles to Lamentations chapter 5. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 690. Page 690. This is the fifth and final poem in the series of poems that commemorate the fall of Jerusalem. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? Lamentations 5. Remember, O Yahweh, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We've become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We're given no rest. We've given the hand to Egypt and to Syria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There's none to deliver us from their hand. We get bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill, and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate, the young men their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from her head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this, our heart has become sick. For these things, our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over. But you, O Yahweh, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Yahweh, that we may be restored. Renew our days of old, unless you've utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. You can be seated as we pray. Father, take this word, and by your Spirit, cause it to bear its intended consequence within us. Together, we unite our prayer, asking for a fullness of your spirit in this time right now. We need to hear from you, and we know that. So clear our hearts, open our eyes, prepare our hearts, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. The groom stands at the head of the aisle. 
The doors open. Everyone in the room stands. And the bride makes her first step down the aisle, arm in arm with her dad. She's radiant. But here's a little secret. Almost everyone in the room looks away from the bride, at least for a moment. Why do they do that? Because they love to steal a look at the groom. They want to see the way he looks at his bride when she walks down the aisle. The groom's gaze. Now, here's the thing about the groom's gaze. You, you could do a study. You could study the faces of dozens and dozens of grooms as the bride walks down the aisle and develop a list of characteristics that unite all of them. And then you could sit down with some future groom and go over just how to cock your head and just how to smile so and how to fix the gaze. And, but that would miss the whole point. The gaze is profound because of the love behind the gaze. What the groom needs isn't some technique. He needs that same deep, passionate love for his bride. That's an important distinction I want to keep in mind, and we're going to come back to it in a little bit. The groom doesn't need the how-to. He needs the passionate love for his bride. Today, from Lamentations 5, we're going to be learning how to pray from the depths of misery. How to pray from the depths of misery. More narrowly, we could say that we're going to learn to pray from the misery that comes from being under God's righteous frown. Because you'll recall, as I mentioned, lamentation was written because God's just anger was burning against Jerusalem for her perpetual generation after generation rebellion against him. God had been so patient. He'd warned them from the get-go from Moses. He'd sent prophet after prophet pleading with them to turn. He'd sent little tremors as kind of a warning sign of the bigger earthquake to come. But they hadn't listened. They thought they were immune. They were God's people. He'd never unleash his wrath on them, they thought. But the day of the Lord came. God raised up the Babylonians and they laid siege to the city so that they cut off all food and drink and people were starving in the city. And when the city was so weakened, they came in, they leveled it. Terrible devastation on Jerusalem, Zion, the temple, and God's people who were living there. It was brutal. So Lamentations is five poems reflecting on that event. And we talked about it at the beginning. It's kind of like a, a prism. You can hold it up to God, God's character shining in through this event. And the, each poem offers a different facet of how to reflect upon that. This fifth and final poem, which we're looking at today, is unique because it's the only poem 
that is entirely a prayer. You'll notice it begins, Remember, O Lord, or Remember, O Yahweh, when the Lord's in all caps like that, what has befallen us, look and see our disgrace. And it ends, Restore us to yourself, O Yahweh, that we may be restored. And in the middle, there, no one else is addressed. This is all being addressed to God. The bookends make that clear. So the unique facet of this part of the prism given to us by this, this fifth poem is this prayer, how to pray in a situation like this. I think it's significant that this book ends with a prayer. If there's any instruction we've been given over and over in Lamentations, it's that we are to take our misery and our sin to God. So Lamentations 2.19 called us to arise, cry in the night, pour out your heart like water before Yahweh, lift up your hands to Him. So Lamentations 5 is an example of how to pray. It teaches us how to pray from the depths of misery. Now I say especially, but not exclusively, the misery that comes from being under God's righteous frown. But it's a helpful lesson. Everything about how you learn to pray, most of us learn to pray by hearing other people pray. I think the best way to learn to pray is to listen in on the prayers of Scripture. I think it would change our, our prayer lives and make them much richer if we did more of that. So that's what we're going to be doing here. But as we do, I want us to remember the groom's gaze. I don't want you to learn the form of the prayer here in Lamentations 5 so that you can just replicate the technique. What I want us to do is to know God like the poet knew God. I don't want us to figure out how to replicate the groom's gaze. I want us to be able to replicate the groom's love. That doesn't mean we can't learn from the form. If we come to know God like the poet did, our heart chords will resonate with the poem and it will shape our prayers. But we learn to pray but as we learn to pray from this chapter, let's not forget the groom's gaze happens because he loves. So how do we pray from the depths of misery? From this poem, I think we see four key ways. First, cry out to your only true hope. That's verse one. Cry out to your only true hope. Look at verse 1. Remember, O Yahweh, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. You hear that? Remember, look, see. This is the basis of the prayer. And it's consistent with the other prayers that we found in Lamentations. So in 1.9 it says, O Yahweh, behold. In chapter 1, verse 11 it says, Look, O Yahweh, and see. In chapter 1, verse 20, it says, Look, O Yahweh. And in chapter 2, verse 20, it says, Look, O Yahweh, and see. You see, the lamenter only has one hope. 
that somehow the creator of the universe would see, see his desperate situation and call it to heart, that he would notice the misery and be moved. That's kind of an interesting request. Asking God to see is like asking a dog to smell bacon. It's what they do by nature. He is all-knowing. He's all-seeing. But the prayer isn't for God to be his all-knowing, all-seeing self. This is a prayer for him to take particular notice. This uh, probably doesn't surprise anyone, but when I was a little kid, I would always want to be the one to speak in class. I wanted to answer every single question, sometimes more than once. And almost anything the teacher was covering, I had some question about it. But I was a good little kid, so I would raise my hand. I think I spent most of my time in school with my hand up. And the teacher would see me, and I would know the teacher had seen me, but for some strange reason, she wouldn't call on me. So you learn all sorts of techniques. Inch it just a little higher, right? Wave a little bit. Wiggle around so that you're getting impatient. I was trying to get, it wasn't that the teacher didn't see, it was that I was trying to get the teacher to take particular notice and act accordingly. And that's a bit what this prayer is like. Of course, the difference is God actually wants us to pray like this and we're not annoying him like I was probably annoying the teacher. But we're saying, God, I know you see, but I want you to act. I want you to take notice. Now, why is it that you would want Yahweh, God, to see? I mean, he's the one who brought this judgment. He's the one who raised up the Babylonians. You said he's like a lion set against you, that he shot his arrows against you. Why would you want him to see? It's only good that this God sees if he's a good God. When you're wounded on the battlefield, you don't go to the enemy snipers and be like, here I am, wounded, I'm hurting. But if you see your own medic, you say, here I am, wounded, look, see, if the God whose just anger caused the destruction was a cruel and vindictive God, a God who indiscriminately ruins people's lives, who on his whims cast down thunderbolts, I'm going to zap you, I'll zap you. If he was such a God, you wouldn't want him to look and see. You only say look and see to the one who you know will be moved with compassion by your misery, even if it is deserved. In chapter 3, verse 33, told us that Yahweh does not afflict from his heart. Chapter 3 told us that God abounds in steadfast love. That is, mercies are new every morning. So even when God must, in his holy justice, smite, he is still one we can turn to. 
He is our hope in our misery. Sometimes it's good for us to pause and think a little bit. What is our hope? Where do we place our hope in misery when we're in a miserable situation? Where's your comfort? I'm not talking theoretically. Probably most in this room theoretically would say, it's God. Talking about in real life. I think we turn to all sorts of things to try and soothe us, to be our hope, our comfort. Maybe we just turn to our busyness. I'm going to put it out of my mind. I'm going to be busy being a parent or busy at work. Maybe we turn to pleasure, parties, fun. We turn to drugs or alcohol to numb us. Some of us place our hope in our own fortitude. We can do this. I can get through this. I'll rise up. And if you listen to the worship songs of our day, and I don't mean the church worship songs, I mean the secular worship songs, they celebrate all these things as our hope. But they don't ultimately pacify. They don't ultimately soothe. Maybe you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ and you have tried various things that the world says this will satisfy, this will be a hope, and you're starting to find out it's empty. I want to put forward for you today that the God of the universe, if you knew his character like like the poet did, like I do, like many in this room do, you would turn to him as your hope. Instead, we're like, remember, O self, look and see. Remember, O weed, look and see. It's empty. It's hollow. Those gods can't deliver. Only the God of the universe can save. Only he can deliver. So our cry must be to him. I know some in this room are in the depths of misery right now in this room. Maybe really big, maybe kind of small, but you're in the depths of misery. Listen. Go to God. We must Go to God in our misery, and not just any God. Yahweh, the God who is rich in love, who is merciful. Plead with him to look and see. Raise your hand, say, look here, look here. See my desperate situation. Call your hardship to his mind. If you, if you really believe he is our one true hope, he's the only one that can rescue, that's what you will do. You will bring your misery to him. And that's the first way we pray in our misery. We cry out to our only hope. And second, from verses 2 to 15, we lay our misery before him. We lay our misery before him. 
let's say your normally resilient seven-year-old comes in from outside reduced to a puddle of tears. You know they're not crocodile tears. This is heartbreak. What does a loving parent want to do in that situation? Put them on your lap, put your arm around them, let their tears run into your shirt, and then say, tell me all about it. Daddy wants to know. God's no different. He wants his children to come and lay their hearts, their misery before him. You, you can bring your desperate situation to him. Not, not just can. You should. It's good to bring your misery to God. Now, in some ways, verses 2 to 15 is here to say, look, God's saying this is okay. It's good to do. It's something we ought to do. But it's also showing us kind of an extension of the first point. If we really believe that our only hope is Almighty God, then we're going to take the time to really enumerate for Him what's befallen us. You don't just stay in generalities. You don't pray, God, see that my... I'm asking you to see my broken heart. Take note of it. Call to mind. Call it to mind. Amen. Oh, you pray. God, see my broken heart. Call it to mind. Call to mind the fists my father threw. His anger flaring. God, I can see his face right now. I can feel how it felt when the whole house was in lockdown. Hear, Heavenly Father, how his words cut me down, telling me how I wasn't what he hoped I'd be, or calling me a coward. You, you get the point. You go on like that. You lay your misery before him. If that's what you want to call to his mind and you know his heart is that he wants to hear, then you lay it before him. Again, you pray like this not because you think God isn't seeing it. You pray this way because you want him to see such a way, in such a way so that he's moved to action and you pray like that because you're confident that's who he is. He's the friendly medic, not the enemy sniper. So you lay it all before him. And that's exactly what our poet does. It's actually quite straightforward to the situation they were in. So in verse 2, he describes how the land God had promised Israel as an inheritance now belongs to the Babylonians. In verse 3, he viscerally mourns how a whole generation of fighting men have been wiped out in battle. Verse 4 describes just how scarce the resources have become. Things that should have been free, water and food, wood, must now be bought. Verse 5 reflects the exhaustion of being under siege and then conquered. When the enemy occupies your land, there is no rest. Verse 6 is written to hint at how the un wise alliances their forefathers made 
have now come up empty. And now they have to go back to these people, their enemies, looking for scraps. And verse 7 laments how they're bearing the weight of sins their forefathers committed. Look at it. Our father sins and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. I think I need to stop on this verse and just comment a little bit. Consistently in the Bible, we are told that the sins of the parents affect the children, and sometimes to the third and fourth generation. The theological label for this is generational sin. But you actually don't need to know the Bible to know it's true. We see it borne out empirically all the time. Cynical, complaining parents often raise cynical, complaining children. Addictions are often passed down. Children who come from divorced homes are more likely to get divorced. On and on it goes. And then kids swear, I don't want to grow up to be like my parents. And then they grow up to be like their parents. And when they don't, which is also often true, they still bear those wounds in other ways. So maybe the abused doesn't grow up to abuse, but there remains all sorts of emotional crud the child is left to deal with. I just think as a parent myself, this is a truth in Scripture that can't be lost on us. The Bible, Jesus says that it would be better to have a millstone, a heavy millstone attached to your neck and be thrown into the sea than to cause one little one to stumble. And then the Bible tells us, parents, our sins don't just affect us. When we choose a path of sin, the chains we choose imprison our children and our grandchildren. The stakes are so high. Let's count the cost before we dabble with that innocent sexual sin. Before our I-just-need-it-to-cope use of substances. Count the cost before we unleash our they-deserved-it anger. I mean, how important, how important are these things to us? Our little vices. Are they important enough to us that we would embrace them at the cost of our children? Now, this does not mean that God is unjust. As we saw in verse 16 of our passage, these children themselves willingly embrace the same sinful patterns of their forefathers. And Ezekiel 18.20 makes very clear that in every case, the children bear the weight of sin because they themselves willingly choose to repeat the pattern. And I think this is important, too. The Bible is not fatalistic. It offers hope. 
These cycles, the Bible teaches, can be broken by repentance. By God's grace, we can consciously step out of the generational rut when we turn our hearts to Jesus and allow his spirit to set us free. So if you're someone in this room, and I think it's many of us, who bear the weight of a generational sin, break the cycle for yourself and for your children. Cry out to God in repentance. Wage war against the sin by the Spirit's power and discover how God's grace can change what feels like your destiny. And I guess that there are parents in this room who hear this and grieve how your own sinful choices have affected your children. You know, if you're hearing this, it's not too late to repent. Confess your sins to your God and to your children. And then begin by God's grace modeling for them a life in Christ following the path of life and wholeness. God may perhaps grant them mercy that they might repent and find that same life. felt like I need to say that from verse 7 because it's a very packed verse. But the point here, of course, is just the poet is bringing his misery to God. One of those is that his forefathers' sins have now been brought home to roost in his generation, and he's miserable. So he's laying it all before God, and he keeps right on going in verse 8. Babylonian slaves were the Israelites' masters, If slaves were considered the bottom class in that day, and they were, the Israelites were a class far below that. Verse 9 expresses that the sword of the Babylonians was so fierce when they were laying siege to the city and had the entire wilderness around Zion surrounded that just to get food, they would have to risk their lives running into the wilderness where the sword was. And verse 10 likens their starvation to being baked in a hot oven. That's how terrible it was. Now he continues bringing his misery before God in verses 11 to 15, but here the poem takes a turn. He's still laying out his experience, but in this section it it emphasizes how all people are affected. If you like to mark your Bibles, you can underline all the different types of people who are affected. Women are raped, including young women, verse 11. Princes and elders are tortured and disrespected, verse 12. Young men are given the work of beasts, and even the children are put to work. Verse 13. The old men can no longer guide and lead the city, and the music of the city that the young men had provided is gone. It's silent. No joy, no dancing from the young. Verses 14 and 15. So so just do you see how the poet prays in verses 2 to 15? 
Do you see what God is, how God is teaching us to pray? Just, just lay it all out. Enumerate your miseries. Don't talk to God in generalities. Get away somewhere. Go someplace. It might be your bedroom. It might be a place in nature. It might be a hotel room somewhere. I don't know. But find a place where you can go and just lay it all out to God. Mix your prayers with tears, but bring it to God's mind. Appeal to Him. Look, God, see, remember. This, this is my miserable condition. It is good, it is important to talk to our loving Father like this. He wants to hear. Our closing song today is a song where we sing like this to God. I introduced this song several years ago. It's an uncomfortable song to sing. It talks about how you can feel like a widow even in this day where Christ is in heaven. We do have his spirit, but he hasn't returned yet. But it it just gives voice to our misery. And we might not all feel that at one time. But it's important to be able to talk to God like this. This is what I'm going through. This is my misery. If we're convinced that God is our only hope, we will talk to God like this. So we learn from this prayer that we should lay our misery before God. And that takes us to the third way we pray when we're miserable. You confess your sins. Verses 16 to 18. Confess your sins. Look at them. The crown has fallen from her head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. We have a pattern in our home that we're trying to instill in our kids. We want to teach them that when you've done wrong, the path forward is to own up, to apologize, to go to the person and make it right. Now, a lot of times, they don't really mean it when they go and apologize. And though as a parent, that doesn't exactly warm your heart, we're actually okay with it, though we're always encouraging it to be from the heart. Because we trust that in time, God is going to change their hearts to bring them in line with this pattern that we're establishing. I tell you that not because we've got it all figured out, but just because I don't want you to think of confess your sins like my kids think of apologizing. It's not some perfunctory thing we have to, okay, I have to confess to God my sins. I'll confess them, all right. When you hear this poem... And throughout Lamentations, what you hear is a genuine ownership of their condition. We are in this situation, the conviction is, because of our sin. We deserve this. There's no sense of blaming God for some unjust situation. The poet realizes his position before a holy God. He doesn't stand over God judging him. He stands under God, aware that they deserve all that they've received. 
Now, oftentimes, our misery is tied to our own sinful hearts. I think more often than we realize. Whenever we are in misery, God's Word advises us to examine ourselves to see if God might be disciplining us for some subtle or overt sin we've allowed to linger. So examination and genuine confession is critical. But the Bible also teaches that sometimes our misery is not a direct result of our sin. And even in those situations, we should approach God with a posture of belonging to a fallen humanity that's rebelled against God and unleashed this mess on the earth. I mean, for any of us, apart for God's grace in Christ, we deserve far worse than whatever misery we're experiencing. So humbling ourselves before God instead of exalting ourselves over Him is a wise course. It's interesting that the poet himself was a prophet of God. It's highly unlikely that he joined Israel in her sin, but he is still giving collective voice to the people's rebellion and confessing. So we confess our sins. When, when we're crushed and weary, when we're miserable, we cry out to our only hope. We lay our misery before him. We confess our sins. We confess our sins, really owning them. And finally, we cast ourselves on his mercy. Verses 19 to 22, we cast ourselves on his mercy. Look with me at verses 19 to 22. But you, O Yahweh, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Yahweh, that we may be restored. Renew our days of old, unless you've utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Now this prayer ends the same way it began. This whole prayer is clearly a plea for God to remember to restore, to renew. She does in verse 21. But depending on how you read this closing part of the prayer, it almost sounds like it's going out on a bit of a whimper. It's an Eeyore prayer. Help us if you can, but you probably won't. <laughs> but I don't believe this is an Eeyore prayer. I think what's happening is the poet is teaching us the right posture for prayer. We are not owed God's mercy. We're not entitled to God's mercy. So there's no hint here of, I deserve this. It makes me think of how the sinful Ninevites prayed when they heard judgment was coming on them in Jonah chapter 3. It says... The king said, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Who knows? Maybe. 
And that posture is exactly right. What's interesting in Jonah is that Jonah the prophet knows exactly what God's going to do when he hears a prayer like that. He will relent. He will turn from his fierce anger. It's his nature to do that because he is merciful. But he's merciful only when we turn to him with a sense of dependence, not a sense of this is what's owed. We don't stand over God telling him what he should do. We don't minimize our sin and act, act as though we deserve God's mercy. I mean, mercy by its very definition is not deserved. So we cast ourselves on his mercy. The great God of the universe who reigns forever is righteous and we're sinful. Why should we think that he would stoop down to hear our case? Why should we think he would stoop to hear our plea? He has every right to be angry forever, to shut us off forever. And that's how we approach him. Now, now I want to thread this needle precisely. That's the posture we approach with, but we know, we know he delights to hear our prayers. We know it's no inconvenience for him to stoop down and hear us. That is actually the core of his very heart. He will not shut us out forever. In Christ, we know that. He is heard. He has rescued. He has restored. So we know that, but we still approach with the right posture. I have very generous parents. If I ask them for something that's in their power to give, they'll give it. I know that. But I never approach them with a sense that I deserve it. The moment I start thinking I, I deserve their generosity is the moment there's something askew in my heart. And though I don't know for sure, I would guess that my parents might sense that and withdraw their generosity if they saw me acting like that. So it is with God. We come to God in our misery, casting ourselves on his mercy. We don't pray like we're entitled. We don't pray as if mercy is deserved. Hear this. We pray as beggars who know our only plea is our abject need and that our only hope is undeserved kindness. So that's how Lamentations 5 teaches us to pray when we're in the depths of misery. Cry out to our only hope. Lay our misery before him. Confess our sins and cast ourselves on his mercy. But I want us to remember the groom's gaze. When we read this prayer, I actually don't want our main take-home to be four points about how to pray when I'm miserable. What I want is for us to look at this poem and be awed with the relationship this man has with his God. He knows Yahweh. Oh, to know God so well that when you are in such misery, you can talk to him like this too. That's what I want more than anything for us. 
from this whole series, that's what I want. I want us to know Yahweh, to know him as he really is. Some of you aren't in the depths of misery, but you need to press in and really know the God of Scripture as he reveals himself, the God of the universe who has rescued us in Christ. Because when you know him and like that, and then the fierce winds start howling, will have a profound confidence in the face of those winds. So like a kite in the face of wind, because it's tethered, we will be able to soar in our misery because we're tethered to the one true God whose mercies are new every morning, who is faithful, whose steadfast love never ceases. And it won't negate the terrible darkness that can pervade and even start to suffocate. You might feel at times like this God is a lion attacking you, like Rachel gave voice to. You might still feel his arrows are piercing your deepest part. You might feel like you're suffocating, but your knowledge of him will hold true even in the midst of such agony. And what emerges from that kind of situation is true lament, something we don't know how to do very well. You can cry out to him, laying it all before him, and you'll know he hears, and you'll know he cares, and you know he will act, not because you deserve it, but because he's a good God. God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? To quote from Romans 8. And just after that, the Bible says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword. It's like he'd been reading or Lamentations. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Will you join me in prayer? God, teach us how to pray in the depths of our misery. And even more profoundly, teach us to know you so that we can pray like Lamentations 5 in the depths of our misery.